Prologue, Chapter 3, Part 2 of Armadale. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Armadale by Wilkie Collins. Prologue, Chapter 3 The Wreck of the Timber Ship, Part 2. Read by David Barnes. It was close on one o'clock, and the bell was ringing, which summoned the visitors to their early dinner at the inn. The quick beat of footsteps, and the gathering hum of voices outside, penetrated gaily into the room, as Mr. Neal spread the manuscript before him on the table, and read the opening sentences in these words. I address this letter to my son, when my son is of an age to understand it, Having lost all hope of living to see my boy grow up to manhood, I have no choice but to write here what I would fain have said to him at a future time with my own lips. I have three objects in writing. First, to reveal the circumstances which attended the marriage of an English lady of my acquaintance in the island of Madeira. Secondly, to throw the true light on the death of her husband a short time afterward, on board the French timber-ship La Grasse de Dieu. Thirdly, to warn my son of a danger that lies in wait for him, a danger that will rise from his father's grave when the earth has closed over his father's ashes. The story of the English lady's marriage begins with my inheriting the great Armadale property, and my taking the fatal Armadale name. I am the only surviving son of the late Matthew Rentmore, of Barbados. I was born on our family estate in that island, and I lost my father when I was still a child. My mother was blindly fond of me. She denied me nothing. She let me live as I pleased. My boyhood and youth were passed in idleness and self-indulgence among people, slaves and half-castes mostly, to whom my will was law. I doubt if there is a gentleman of my birth and station in all England as ignorant as I am at this moment. I doubt if there was ever a young man in this world whose passions were left so entirely without control of any kind as mine were in those early days. My mother had a woman's romantic objection to my father's homely Christian name, I was christened Alan, after the name of a wealthy cousin of my father's, the late Alan Armadale, who possessed estates in our neighbourhood, the largest and the most productive in the island, and who consented to be my godfather by proxy. Mr. Armadale had never seen his West Indian property. He lived in England, and after sending me the customary godfather's present, he held no further communication with my parents for years afterwards. I was just twenty-one before we heard again from Mr. Armadale. On that occasion my mother received a letter from him, asking if I was still alive, and offering no less, if I was, than to make me the heir to his West Indian property. This piece of good fortune fell to me entirely through the misconduct of Mr. Armadale's son and only child. The young man had disgraced himself beyond all redemption, had left his home an outlaw, and had been thereupon renounced by his father at once and forever. 
Having no other near male relative to succeed him, Mr. Armadale thought of his cousin's son and his own godson, and he offered the West Indian estate to me and my heirs after me on one condition, that I and my heirs should take his name. The proposal was gratefully accepted, and the proper legal measures were adopted for changing my name in the colony and in the mother country. By the next mail, information reached Mr. Armadale that his condition had been complied with. The return mail brought news from the lawyers. The will had been altered in my favour, and in a week afterwards the death of my benefactor had made me the largest proprietor and the richest man in Barbados. This was the first event in the chain. The second event followed it six weeks afterwards. At that time there happened to be a vacancy in the clerk's office on the estate, and there came to fill it a young man about my own age, who had recently arrived in the island. He announced himself by the name of Fergus Ingleby. My impulses governed me in everything. I knew no law but the law of my own caprice, and I took a fancy to the stranger the moment I set eyes on him. He had the manners of a gentleman, and he possessed the most attractive social qualities which, in my small experience, I had ever met with. When I heard that the written references to character which he had brought with him were pronounced to be unsatisfactory, I interfered and insisted that he should have the place. My will was law, and he had it. My mother disliked and distrusted Ingleby from the first. When she found the intimacy between us rapidly ripening, when she found me admitting this inferior to the closest companionship and confidence, I had lived with my inferiors all my life, and I liked it, she made effort after effort to part us, and failed in one and all, Driven to her last resources, she resolved to try the one chance left, the chance of persuading me to take a voyage which I had often thought of, a voyage to England. Before she spoke to me on the subject, she resolved to interest me in the idea of seeing England, as I had never been interested yet. She wrote to an old friend and an old admirer of hers, the late Stephen Blanchard of Thorpe Ambrose in Norfolk, a gentleman of landed estate, and a widower with a grown-up family. After discoveries informed me that she must have alluded to their former attachment, which was checked, I believe, by the parents on either side, and that, in asking Mr. Blanchard's welcome for her son when he came to England, she made inquiries about his daughter, which hinted at the chance of a marriage uniting the two families, if the young lady and I met and liked one another. We were equally matched in every respect, and my mother's recollection of her girlish attachment to Mr. Blanchard made the prospect of my marrying her old admirer's daughter the brightest and happiest prospect that her eyes could see. Of all this I knew nothing, until Mr. Blanchard's answer arrived at Barbados. Then my mother showed me the letter, and put the temptation which was to separate me from Fergus Ingleby openly in my way. Mr. Blanchard's letter was dated from the island of Madeira. He was out of health, and he had been ordered there by the doctors to try the climate. His daughter was with him. 
after heartily reciprocating all my mother's hopes and wishes, he proposed, if I intended leaving Barbados shortly, that I should take Madeira on my way to England, and pay him a visit at his temporary residence in the island. If this could not be, he mentioned the time at which he expected to be back in England, when I might be sure of finding a welcome at his own house of Thorpe Ambrose. In conclusion, he apologized for not writing at greater length, explaining that his eyesight was affected, and that he had disobeyed the doctor's orders by yielding to the temptation of writing to his old friend with his own hand. Kindly as it was expressed, the letter itself might have had little influence on me, but there was something else besides the letter. There was enclosed in it a miniature portrait of Miss Blanchard, at the back of the portrait her father had written half jestingly, half tenderly, I can't ask my daughter to spare my eyes as usual, without telling her of your inquiries, and putting a young lady's diffidence to the blush, so I send her in effigy, without her knowledge, to answer for herself. It is a good likeness of a good girl. If she likes your son, and if I like him, which I'm sure I shall, we may yet live, my good friend, to see our children, what we might once have been ourselves, man and wife. My mother gave me the miniature with the letter. The portrait at once struck me. I can't say why, I can't say how, as nothing of the kind had ever struck me before. Harder intellects than mine might have attributed the extraordinary impression produced on me to the disordered condition of my mind at that time, to the weariness of my own base pleasures which had been gaining on me for months past, to the undefined longing which that weariness implied for newer interests and fresher hopes than any that had possessed me yet. I attempted no such sober self-examination as this. I believed in destiny then. I believe in destiny now. It was enough for me to know, as I did know, that the first sense I had ever felt of something better in my nature than my animal self was roused by that girl's face looking at me from her picture, as no woman's face had ever looked at me yet. In those tender eyes, in the chance of making that gentle creature my wife, I saw my destiny written. The portrait which had come into my hands so strangely and so unexpectedly was the silent messenger of happiness close at hand, sent to warn, to encourage, to rouse me before it was too late. I put the miniature under my pillow at night. I looked at it again the next morning. My conviction of the day before remained as strong as ever. My superstition, if you please to call it so, pointed out to me irresistibly the way in which I should go. There was a ship in port, which was to sail for England in a fortnight, touching at Madeira. In that ship I took my passage. Thus far the reader had advanced with no interruption to disturb him, but at the last words the tones of another voice, low and broken, mingled with his own. "'Was she a fair woman?' asked the voice, "'or dark like me?' Mr. Neal paused and looked up. The doctor was still at the bedhead, with his fingers mechanically on the patient's pulse. 
The child, missing his midday sleep, was beginning to play languidly with his new toy. The father's eyes were watching him with a rapt and ceaseless attention. But one great change was visible in the listeners since the narrative had begun. Mrs. Armadale had dropped her hold of her husband's hand and sat with her face steadily turned away from him. The hot African blood burnt red in her dusky cheeks as she obstinately repeated the question, Was she a fair woman, or dark like me? Fair, said her husband, without looking at her. Her hands, lying clasped together on her lap, wrung each other hard. She said no more. Mr. Neal's overhanging eyebrows lowered ominously, and he returned to the narrative. He had incurred his own severe displeasure. He had caught himself in the act of secretly pitying her. I have said, the letter proceeded, that Ingleby was admitted to my closest confidence. I was sorry to leave him, and I was distressed by his evident surprise and mortification when he heard that I was going away. In my own justification I showed him the letter and the likeness, and told him the truth. His interest in the portrait seemed to be hardly inferior to my own. He asked me about Miss Blanchard's family, and Miss Blanchard's fortune with the sympathy of a true friend, and he strengthened my regard for him and my belief in him, by putting himself out of the question, and by generously encouraging me to persist in my new purpose. When we parted, I was in high health and spirits. Before we met again the next day, I was suddenly struck by an illness which threatened both my reason and my life. I have no proof against Ingleby. There was more than one woman on the island whom I had wronged beyond all forgiveness, and whose vengeance might well have reached me at that time. I can accuse nobody. I can only say that my life was saved by my old black nurse, and that the woman afterwards acknowledged having used the known negro antidote to a known negro poison in those parts. When my first days of convalescence came, the ship in which my passage had been taken had long since sailed. When I asked for Ingleby, he was gone, Proofs of his unpardonable misconduct in this situation were placed before me, which not even my partiality for him could resist. He had been turned out of the office in the first days of my illness, and nothing more was known of him but that he had left the island. All through my sufferings the portrait had been under my pillow. All through my convalescence it was my one consolation when I remembered the past, and my one encouragement when I thought of the future. No words can describe the hold that first fancy had now taken of me, with time and solitude and suffering to help it. My mother, with all her interest in the match, was startled by the unexpected success of her own project. She had written to tell Mr. Blanchard of my illness, but had received no reply. She now offered to write again if I would promise not to leave her before my recovery was complete. My impatience acknowledged no restraint. Another ship in port gave me another chance of leaving for Madeira. Another examination of Mr. Blanchard's letter of invitation assured me that I should find him still in the island, 
if I seized my opportunity on the spot. In defiance of my mother's entreaties, I insisted on taking my passage in the second ship, and this time, when the ship sailed, I was on board. The change did me good. The sea air made a man of me again. After an unusually rapid voyage, I found myself at the end of my pilgrimage. On a fine still evening, which I can never forget, I stood alone on the shore, with her likeness in my bosom, and saw the white walls of the house where I knew that she lived. I strolled round the outer limits of the grounds to compose myself before I went in. Venturing through a gate and a shrubbery, I looked into the garden and saw a lady there, loitering alone on the lawn. She turned her face towards me, and I beheld the original of my portrait, the fulfilment of my dream. It is useless, and worse than useless, to write of it now. Let me only say that every promise which the likeness had made to my fancy, the living woman kept to my eyes in the moment when they first looked on her. Let me say this, and no more. I was too violently agitated to trust myself in her presence. I drew back undiscovered, and making my way to the front door of the house, asked for her father first. Mr. Blanchard had retired to his room and could see nobody. Upon that I took courage and asked for Miss Blanchard. The servant smiled. "'My young lady is not Miss Blanchard any longer, sir,' he said. "'She is married.' Those words would have struck some men in my position to the earth. They fired my hot blood, and I seized the servant by the throat in a frenzy of rage. "'It is a lie!' I broke out, speaking to him as if he had been one of the slaves on my own estate. "'It's the truth,' said the man, struggling with me. "'Her husband is in the house at this moment.' "'Who is he, you scoundrel?' The servant answered by repeating my own name to my own face. "'Alan Armadale.' You can now guess the truth. Fergus Ingleby was the outlawed son whose name and whose inheritance I had taken, and Fergus Ingleby was even with me for depriving him of his birthright. Some account of the manner in which the deception had been carried out is necessary to explain, I don't say to justify, the share I took in the events that followed my arrival at Madeira. By Ingleby's own confession, he had come to Barbados, knowing of his father's death and of my succession to the estates, with the settled purpose of plundering and injuring me. My rash confidence put such an opportunity into his hands as he could never have hoped for. He had waited to possess himself of the letter which my mother wrote to Mr. Blanchard at the outset of my illness, had then caused his own dismissal from his situation, and had sailed for Madeira in the very ship that was to have sailed with me. Arrived at the island, he had waited again, till the vessel was away once more on her voyage, and had then presented himself at Mr. Blanchard's, not in the assumed name by which I shall continue to speak of him here, but in the name which was as certainly his as mine, Alan Armadale. The fraud at the outset presented few difficulties. He had only an ailing old man, who had not seen my mother for half a lifetime, 
and an innocent, unsuspicious girl, who had never seen her at all, to deal with, and he had learnt enough in my service to answer the few questions that were put to him, as readily as I might have answered them myself. His looks and manners, his winning ways with women, his quickness and cunning did the rest. While I was still on my sickbed, he had won Miss Blanchard's affections, while I was dreaming over the likeness in the first days of my convalescence, he had secured Mr. Blanchard's consent to the celebration of the marriage before he and his daughter left the island. Thus far, Mr. Blanchard's infirmity of sight had helped the deception. He had been content to send messages to my mother, and to receive the messages which were duly invented in return, but when the suitor was accepted and the wedding-day was appointed, he felt it due to his old friend to write to her, asking her formal consent and inviting her to the marriage. He could only complete part of the letter himself. The rest was finished under his dictation by Miss Blanchard. There was no chance of being beforehand with the post-office this time, and Ingleby, sure of his place in the heart of his victim, waylaid her as she came out of her father's room with the letter, and privately told her the truth. She was still under age, and the position was a serious one. If the letter was posted, no resource would be left but to wait and be parted forever, and to elope under circumstances which made detection almost a certainty." the destination of any ship which took them away would be known beforehand and the fast-sailing yacht in which mr blanchard had come to madeira was waiting in the harbour to take him back to england the only other alternative was to continue the deception by suppressing the letter and to confess the truth when they were securely married what arts of persuasion Ingleby used, what base advantage he might previously have taken of her love and her trust in him, to degrade Miss Blanchard to his own level, I cannot say. He did degrade her. The letter never went to its destination, and with the daughter's privity and consent, the father's confidence was abused to the very last." The one precaution now left to take was to fabricate the letter from my mother which Mr. Blanchard expected, and which would arrive in due course of post before the day appointed for the marriage. Ingleby had my mother's stolen letter with him, but he was without the imitative dexterity which would have enabled him to make use of it for a forgery of her handwriting. Miss Blanchard, who had consented passively to the deception, refused to take any active share in the fraud practised on her father. In this difficulty, Ingleby found an instrument ready to his hand, in an orphan girl of barely twelve years old, a marvel of precocious ability, whom Miss Blanchard had taken a romantic fancy to befriend, and whom she had brought away with her from England to be trained as her maid. That girl's wicked dexterity removed the one serious obstacle left to the success of the fraud. I saw the imitation of my mother's writing, which she had produced under Ingleby's instructions, and, if the shameful truth must be told, with her young mistress's knowledge, and I believe I should have been deceived by it myself. 
I saw the girl afterwards, and my blood curdled at the sight of her. If she is alive now, woe to the people who trust her. No creature more innately deceitful and more innately pitiless ever walked this earth. The forged letter paved the way securely for the marriage, and when I reached the house they were, as the servant had truly told me, man and wife. My arrival on the scene simply precipitated the confession which they had both agreed to make. Ingleby's own lips shamelessly acknowledged the truth. He had nothing to lose by speaking out. He was married, and his wife's fortune was beyond her father's control. I pass over all that followed, my interview with the daughter and my interview with the father, to come to results. For two days the efforts of the wife and the efforts of the clergyman who had celebrated the marriage were successful in keeping Ingleby and myself apart. On the third day I set my trap more successfully, and I and the man who had mortally injured me met together alone, face to face. Remember how my confidence had been abused. Remember how the one good purpose of my life had been thwarted. Remember the violent passions rooted deep in my nature, and never yet controlled. And then imagine for yourself what passed between us. All I need tell here is the end. He was a taller and a stronger man than I, and he took the brute's advantage with a brute's ferocity. He struck me. Think of the injuries I had received at that man's hands, and then think of his setting his mark on my face by a blow. I went to an English officer, who had been my fellow passenger on the voyage from Barbados. I told him the truth, and he agreed with me that a meeting was inevitable. Dueling had its received formalities and its established laws in those days, and he began to speak of them. I stopped him. I will take a pistol in my right hand, I said, and he shall take a pistol in his. I will take one end of a handkerchief in my left hand, and he shall take the other end in his, and across that handkerchief the duel shall be fought. The officer got up and looked at me as if I had personally insulted him. You are asking me to be present at a murder and a suicide, he said. I decline to serve you. He left the room. As soon as he was gone, I wrote down the words I had said to the officer, and sent them by a messenger to Ingleby. While I was waiting for an answer, I sat down before the glass, and looked at his mark on my face. Many a man has had blood on his hands and blood on his conscience, I thought, for less than this. The messenger came back with Ingleby's answer. It appointed a meeting for three o'clock the next day at a lonely place in the interior of the island. I had resolved what to do if he refused. His letter released me from the horror of my own resolution. I felt grateful to him, yes, absolutely grateful to him, for writing it. The next day I went to the place. He was not there. I waited two hours and he never came. At last the truth dawned on me. Once a coward, always a coward, I thought. 
I went back to Mr. Blanchard's house. Before I got there, a sudden misgiving seized me, and I turned aside to the harbour. I was right. The harbour was the place to go to. A ship sailing for Lisbon that afternoon had offered him the opportunity of taking a passage for himself and his wife, and escaping me. His answer to my challenge had served its purpose of sending me out of the way into the interior of the island. Once more I had trusted in Fergus Ingleby, and once more those sharp wits of his had been too much for me. I asked my informant if Mr. Blanchard was aware as yet of his daughter's departure. He had discovered it, but not until the ship had sailed. This time I took a lesson in cunning from Ingleby. Instead of showing myself at Mr. Blanchard's house, I went first, and looked at Mr. Blanchard's yacht. The vessel told me what the vessel's master might have concealed, the truth. I found her in the confusion of a sudden preparation for sea. All the crew were on board, with the exception of some few who had been allowed their leave on shore, and who were away in the interior of the island, nobody knew where. When I discovered that the sailing-master was trying to supply their places with the best men he could pick up at a moment's notice, my resolution was instantly taken. I knew the duties on board a yacht well enough, having had a vessel of my own, and having sailed her myself. Hurrying into the town, I changed my dress for a sailor's coat and hat, and returning to the harbour, I offered myself as one of the volunteer crew. I don't know what the sailing-master saw in my face. My answers to his questions satisfied him, and yet he looked at me and hesitated. But hands were scarce, and it ended in my being taken on board. An hour later Mr. Blanchard joined us, and was assisted into the cabin, suffering pitiably in mind and body both. An hour after that we were at sea, with a starless night overhead and a fresh breeze behind us. As I had surmised, we were in pursuit of the vessel in which Ingleby and his wife had left the island that afternoon. The ship was French, and was employed in the timber trade. Her name was La Grasse de Dieu. Nothing more was known of her than that she was bound for Lisbon, that she had been driven out of her course, and that she had touched at Madeira, short of men and short of provisions. The last want had been supplied, but not the first. Sailors distrusted the seaworthiness of the ship, and disliked the look of the vagabond crew. When those two serious facts had been communicated to Mr. Blanchard, the hard words he had spoken to his child in the first shock of discovering that she had helped to deceive him, smote him to the heart. He instantly determined to give his daughter a refuge on board his own vessel, and to quiet her by keeping her villain of a husband out of the way of all harm at my hands. The yacht sailed three feet and more to the ship's one. There was no doubt of our overtaking La Grasse de Dieu. The only fear was that we might pass her in the darkness." After we had been some little time out, the wind suddenly dropped, and there fell on us an airless, sultry calm. When the order came to get the topmasts on deck and to shift the large sails, we all knew what to expect. 
In little better than an hour more, the storm was upon us, the thunder was peeling over our heads, and the yacht was running for it. She was a powerful schooner-rigged vessel of three hundred tons, as strong as wood and iron could make her, and she was handled by a sailing-master who thoroughly understood his work, and she behaved nobly. As the new morning came, the fury of the wind, blowing still from the southwest quarter, subsided a little, and the sea was less heavy. Just before daybreak we heard faintly, through the howling of the gale, the report of a gun. The men, collected anxiously on deck, looked at each other and said, "'There she is!' With the daybreak we saw the vessel, and the timber-ship it was. She lay wallowing in the trough of the sea, her foremast and her mainmast both gone, a waterlogged wreck. The yacht carried three boats, one amidships and two slung to davits on the quarters, and the sailing-master, seeing signs of the storm renewing its fury before long, determined on lowering the quarter-boats while the lull lasted. Few as the people were on board the wreck, they were too many for one boat, and the risk of trying two boats at once was thought less, in the critical state of the weather, than the risk of making two separate trips from the yacht to the ship. There might be time to make one trip in safety, but no man could look at the heavens and say there would be time enough for two. The boats were manned by volunteers from the crew, I being in the second of the two. When the first boat had got alongside of the timber-ship, a service of difficulty and danger which no words can describe, all the men on board made a rush to leave the wreck together. If the boats had not been pulled off again before the whole of them had crowded in, the lives of all must have been sacrificed. As our boat approached the vessel in its turn, we arranged that four of us should get on board, two, I being one of them, to see to the safety of Mr. Blanchard's daughter, and two to beat back the cowardly remnant of the crew if they tried to crowd in first. The other three, the coxswain and two oarsmen, were left in the boat to keep her from being crushed by the ship. What the others saw when they first boarded La Grasse de Dieu I don't know. What I saw was the woman whom I had lost, the woman vilely stolen from me, lying in a swoon on the deck, we lowered her, insensible, into the boat. The remnant of the crew, five in number, were compelled by main force to follow her in an orderly manner, one by one, and minute by minute, as the chance offered for safely taking them in. I was the last who left, and at the next roll of the ship towards us, the empty length of the deck, without a living creature on it from stem to stern, told the boat's crew that their work was done. With the louder and louder howling of the fast-rising tempest to warn them, they rowed for their lives back to the yacht. A succession of heavy squalls had brought round the course of the new storm that was coming from the south to the north, and the sailing-master, watching his opportunity, had wore the yacht to be ready for it, before the last of our men had got on board again, it burst on us with the fury of a hurricane. Our boat was swamped, but not a life was lost. Once more we ran before it, due south, at the mercy of the wind. I was on deck with the rest, watching the one rag of sail we could venture to set, 
and waiting to supply its place with another if it blew out of the bolt-ropes, when the mate came close to me and shouted in my ear through the thunder of the storm, "'She has come to her senses in the cabin and has asked for her husband. Where is he?' Not a man on board knew. The yacht was searched from one end to another without finding him. The men were mustered in defiance of the weather. He was not among them. The crews of the two boats were questioned. All the first crew could say was that they had pulled away from the wreck when the rush into their boat took place, and that they knew nothing of who they let in or who they kept out. All the second crew could say was that they had brought back to the yacht every living soul left by the first boat on the deck of the timber ship. There was no blaming anybody, but at the same time there was no resisting the fact that the man was missing. All through that day the storm, raging unabatedly, never gave us even the shadow of a chance of returning and searching the wreck. The one hope for the yacht was to scud. Towards evening the gale, after having carried us out to the southward of Madeira, began at last to break. The wind shifted again and allowed us to bear up for the island. Early the next morning we got back into port. Mr. Blanchard and his daughter were taken ashore, the sailing-master accompanying them and warning us that he should have something to say on his return which would nearly concern the whole crew. We were mustered on deck and addressed by the sailing-master as soon as he came on board again. He had Mr. Blanchard's orders to go back at once to the timber-ship and to search for the missing man. We were bound to do this for his sake, and for the sake of his wife, whose reason was despaired of by the doctors if something was not done to quiet her. We might be almost sure of finding the vessel still afloat, for her lading of timber would keep her above water as long as her hull held together. If the man was on board, living or dead, he must be found and brought back and if the weather continued to moderate there was no reason why the men, with proper assistance, should not bring the ship back too, and, their master being quite willing, earn their share of the salvage with the officers of the yacht. Upon this the crew gave three cheers, and set to work forthwith to get the schooner to sea again. I was the only one of them who drew back from the enterprise. I told them the storm had upset me, I was ill and wanted rest. They all looked me in the face as I passed through them on my way out of the yacht, but not a man of them spoke to me. I waited through that day at a tavern on the port for the first news from the wreck. It was brought towards nightfall by one of the pilot boats which had taken part in the enterprise for saving the abandoned ship. La Grasse de Dieu had been discovered still floating, and the body of Ingleby had been found on board, drowned in the cabin. At dawn the next morning the dead man was brought back by the yacht, and on the same day the funeral took place in the Protestant cemetery. "'Stop!' said the voice from the bed, before the reader could turn a new leaf and begin the next paragraph. There was a change in the room, and there were changes in the audience since Mr. Neal had last looked up from the narrative. A ray of sunshine was crossing the deathbed, and the child, 
overcome by drowsiness, lay peacefully asleep in the golden light. The father's countenance had altered visibly. Forced into action by the tortured mind, the muscles of the lower face, which had never moved yet, were moving distortedly now. Warned by the damps gathering heavily on his forehead, the doctor had risen to revive the sinking man. On the other side of the bed the wife's chair stood empty. At the moment when her husband had interrupted the reading, she had drawn back behind the bedhead, out of his sight. Supporting herself against the wall, she stood there in hiding, her eyes fastened in hungering suspense on the manuscript in Mr. Neal's hand. In a minute more the silence was broken again by Mr. Armadale. "'Where is she?' he asked, looking angrily at his wife's empty chair. The doctor pointed to the place. She had no choice but to come forward. She came slowly and stood before him. "'You promised to go when I told you,' he said. "'Go now.' Mr. Neal tried hard to control his hand as it kept his place between the leaves of the manuscript, but it trembled in spite of him. A suspicion which had been slowly forcing itself on his mind while he was reading became a certainty when he heard those words. From one revelation to another the letter had gone on, until it had now reached the brink of a last disclosure to come. At that brink the dying man had predetermined to silence the reader's voice before he had permitted his wife to hear the narrative read. There was the secret which the son was to know in after years and which the mother was never to approach. From that resolution his wife's tenderest pleadings had never moved him an inch, and now from his own lips his wife knew it. She made no answer. She stood there and looked at him, looked her last entreaty, perhaps her last farewell. His eyes gave her back no answering glance. They wandered from her mercilessly to the sleeping boy. She turned speechless from the bed. Without a look at the child, without a word to the two strangers breathlessly watching her, she kept the promise she had given and in dead silence left the room. There was something in the manner of her departure which shook the self-possession of both the men who witnessed it. When the door closed on her, they recoiled instinctively from advancing farther in the dark. The doctor's reluctance was the first to express itself. He attempted to obtain the patient's permission to withdraw until the letter was completed, the patient refused. Mr. Neal spoke next at greater length and to more serious purpose. "'The doctor is accustomed in his profession,' he began, "'and I am accustomed in mine to have the secrets of others placed in our keeping. But it is my duty, before we go farther, to ask if you really understand the extraordinary position which we now occupy towards one another.' You have just excluded Mrs. Armadale, before our own eyes, from a place in your confidence, and you are now offering that same place to two men who are total strangers to you. Yes, said Mr. Armadale, because you are strangers. Few as the words were, 
the inference to be drawn from them was not of a nature to set distrust at rest. Mr. Neal put it plainly into words. "'You are in urgent need of my help and of the doctor's help,' he said. "'Am I to understand, so long as you secure our assistance, "'that the impression which the closing passages of this letter may produce on us "'is a matter of indifference to you?' "'Yes, I don't spare you. I don't spare myself. I do spare my wife.' "'You force me to a conclusion, sir, which is a very serious one,' said Mr. Neal. "'If I am to finish this letter under your dictation, I must claim permission, having read aloud the greater part of it already, to read aloud what remains in the hearing of this gentleman as a witness. "'Read it.' Gravely doubting, the doctor resumed his chair. Gravely doubting, Mr. Neal turned the leaf and read the next words. There is more to tell before I can leave the dead man to his rest. I have described the finding of his body, but I have not described the circumstances under which he met his death. He was known to have been on deck when the yacht's boats were seen approaching the wreck, and he was afterwards missed in the confusion caused by the panic of the crew. At that time the water was five feet deep in the cabin and was rising fast. There was little doubt of his having gone down into that water of his own accord. The discovery of his wife's jewel-box close under him on the floor explained his presence in the cabin. He was known to have seen help approaching and it was quite likely that he had thereupon gone below to make an effort at saving the box. It was less probable, though it might still have been inferred, that his death was the result of some accident in diving, which had for the moment deprived him of his senses. But a discovery by the yacht's crew pointed straight to a conclusion which struck the men one and all with the same horror. When the course of their search brought them to the cabin, they found the scuttle bolted and the door locked on the outside. Had someone closed the cabin, not knowing he was there? Setting the panic-stricken condition of the crew out of the question, there was no motive for closing the cabin before leaving the wreck. But one other conclusion remained. Had some murderous hand purposely locked the man in, and left him to drown as the water rose over him. Yes, a murderous hand had locked him in, and left him to drown. That hand was mine. The Scotchman started up from the table. The doctor shrank from the bedside. The two looked at the dying wretch, mastered by the same loathing, chilled by the same dread. He lay there with the child's head on his breast, abandoned by the sympathies of man, accursed by the justice of God. He lay there in the isolation of Cain and looked back at them. End of Prologue Chapter 3 Part 2